In the final parsha of Breshit, the family is re- reunited in Mitzrayim, and we watch this reunion through the eyes of the deaths of Yaakov and Yosef. The interaction at this family reunion, which comes so often in the liturgical cycle at this time of year, where many of families are, try to reunite cross-generationally for the winter holiday period, has three strikingly odd dimensions. First, and it's an extremely male-dominated interaction with women both unseen and unheard. The male patriarchy is rarely on such display, even in a very patriarchal overall narrative. Second, in what should be the great passing of the torch from one generation to the next of fathers to sons in this case, Yaakov blesses his sons with words that bring each to task as stuck in their adolescent selves. Whether it's Yosef's popularity with the girls or Reuben's literal Oedipus complex, Shimon and Levi's preoccupation with weapons, so timely viewed as an adolescent here preoccupation. And third, after all the attempts by Yosef to persuade his siblings that he has moved beyond the drama of their adolescence, they still are convinced that his rivalry knows no bounds. They're still stuck in the past, and they lie to him about their father's final words, convinced that Yosef's smiles hide his desire to see them done in and killed. Patriarchy on display, not a holy picture. The transmission from father to sons disrupted, and a sibling-adolescent relationship persisting through adult male life. This coming week would have been the 95th birthday of Robert Bly. He died this past November 21st in Minneapolis. Besides being a longtime Minnesotan, he was a prolific American poet, poetry translator, and probably the premier poetry anthologizer of America, who had a special focus on inclusion of poetry from diverse cultures, and poetry that incorporated religious themes. Bly was also well known for two books of social commentary. While he appreciated the freedoms and liberation of the 1960s, a time that gave rise to his generation of poetic styles, he was acutely concerned with the effects of two merging trends he wrote about. One, the American government's increasing abandonment of the poor and the middle class and future generations to favor capitalism and to go into deficits and his generation's increasing identification of self-gratification and self-centeredness with freedom, individualism, and ironically, rebellion. Ironic, since capitalism likes people who want what they want when they want it, especially when it's new and different from their parents, and especially what they want when all their peers are now wanting. So it's a welcome form of rebellion against capitalism by capitalism. For what it's worth, Dostoevsky predicted all of this. That's a different sermon. The first book, Iron John, argued that American society lacked what almost every other human society always had, a rite of passage for adolescence, a transition period from childhood to adulthood, celebrated, ritualized, and taken seriously. A rite of passage serves a vital practical and mythological purpose. The transition for a child to adulthood through a challenging ritual in which the child is brought into the secrets, as Bly said, of the tribal values of wise elders. While the ritual, whether a swimming ritual or a tribal dance or a bat mitzvah, it's difficult. And the child is shown they are able to face, master, and enter the world of adults, where they will gain a great treasure, the responsibility of eventually becoming an elder themselves, 
someone able to handle life's trials and tribulations, someone whose reward is the satisfaction of being wise and kind and sensitively feeling and nourishing and nurturing and upholding the highest values and virtues of the inherited values of the tribe, which is what being a true grown-up means. And being grown-up is its own reward. And then passing that dignity and inherited knowledge on and helping others through the process. The book argued that lack of a rite of passage in our society meant that we don't value growing up. We're skeptical of tradition and of virtue, of the possibility of gratification and being a good adult, one who embraces wisdom, listening, guiding, reading, managing adversity, and more than anything, being nurturing. We idolize retaining adolescent qualities throughout life. He predicted this a long time ago. He said, we show it through our fascination with performative ethics. That is, saying one is a radical or iconoclast is itself the revolution, because I said so, or I attended a rally, or I signed a petition. Rather than action, policy, society change. And another adolescent quality, skepticism that there's wisdom in what is inherited, as it is only to be found, wisdom is only to be found in the disruptive. Though the book Iron John is often remembered as a men's movement book, and that sounds suspicious, that was somehow arguing for a dangerous preservation of patriarchy, actually Bly argued that the American patriarchy that dominated America in the 1950s was a hollow patriarchy, one in which masculinity was defined as aloofness, not maturity, and one that depended on exploiting women. If the man went to work, then he was free. He didn't need to interact with children. That was a woman's job. And so a generation of children, he argued, grew up emotionally absent fathers. We wonder where Jacob was. Remember, we started this Joseph saga several, several weeks ago. Jacob didn't seem to be around the the sons as they played and bullied each other. When it was time for Joseph to be raised, he sent him out with his brothers. They'll raise him, right, by being in the group of the other boys. Didn't seem to have a conversation with him. And further than that, Bly identified masculinity with deep feeling of one's emotions, of holding strength and sensitivity as intertwined. The rabbis in the Talmud are often crying. And in this parsha, we have the breakthrough. The men crying repeatedly. The greatest virtue of masculinity argued is nurturing. Think pa in Little House of the Prairie. Hours of time spent with children, of crying and of feeling themselves, of showing them little invitations into what life as an adult is like, how you feel it, how you manage it, that it's going to be okay. Not assigning this to mothers, but sharing it with them. That was the main argument of Iron John. And in his second book, The Sibling Society, here with the siblings all gathered around their father, he argued that again, claiming that America's abandonment of the poor and middle class forced both mothers and fathers to work. And so now women were doubly damned. They were told to work their shifts, often at weird times of the day, still faced husbands who left them to nurture children, not just to take care of them physically, but the spiritual and emotional parts, the long conversations, the how does the adult world work? the teaching and the guiding. He writes in the Sibling Society the following, dignified adult life with its heights and its depths protected by wisely kept secrets once attracted children in such a way that they wanted to become adults. Now they see incoherent emptiness and chaos. The Sibling Society does not effectively protect even those children who are parented. 
The media are given full access to childhood privacy. Children are asked to digest things even adults find indigestible. Talk shows tell all the secrets before the child has learned to trust life or accumulate meaning and value. More and more children now manage to shift from being small players in the family drama and the national life, which they were in the 19th century, to now becoming the stars. We see it in the increased presence of children in the Olympics, in fashion, and in celebrity. He writes, children need an elaborated language in order for their brain development to occur. And one way to achieve the elaborated language is through hours and hours of conversation with adults, not with each other. Conversation means not only how was the game or have you cleaned your room, but the slow, quiet talk in which the child gets a glimpse into the strange countryside of the grown-up's brain, in which the grown-up says, I always give money to the beggar, even though I don't want to. Or the test of a culture is a decent provision for the poor. Or my problem with the pirate, even though you like them, is the pirates lack empathy. A poll a few years ago revealed that the average American father talks to his child about 10 minutes a day. This is him quoting a study from the time that the Sibling Society was written. He writes, Russians have a word for soul talk, and it wasn't unusual for a grandfather to say to a granddaughter, let's go out by the tree and have some soul talk. We don't even have a word for it. Wages of working class, middle-class parents have fallen significantly, so their need to work takes away from family mealtime and reading together. What the young needs, stability, presence, attention, advice, good psychic food, unpolluted stories, is exactly what the sibling society won't give them. He says we expect the school to do it, and he wrote this in a time where he couldn't even imagine what class sizes are today. He says he draws inspiration from Alexander Michlich, who wrote, Mass society with its demand for work without responsibility creates a gigantic army of rival siblings. This is where he talked the title of his book. Ours is a society in which adults regress toward adolescence and, and adolescents themselves seeing that have no desire to become adults. You can't imagine any genuine life coming from the vertical plane. That is tradition, religion, devotion. As Robert Sapolsky writes, my students have no use for religion, precedence, or tradition. They want their rituals newly minted and shared horizontally with their age group, not vertically over time. They go after work like warriors, overturning reigning paradigms, each discovery of theirs, the death of their ancestors. We're heading in a direction where people think that the only people worth listening to are people your own age. But rather than create a new vertical tradition, a concern with forward and backward, Lador Vador, even a holism, this movement produces half adults, those who see themselves as members of a pack and a breathless hurricane to join through ceaseless action and hustling because it takes leisure to mature. And people in a hurry can neither grow nor decay. They are preserved in a state of perpetual adolescence. So as we return to the parsha, I see three particular links. Is there a transmission from father to child? Has there been that nurturing? Has there been their feeling or has he been withdrawn? Did he leave them to themselves? Yaakov seems like the bly absent father of Iron John. It was the boys interacting with the boys. Yosef, go be with them. They'll grow you up. Redoing the favoritism that destroyed his own childhood, where his father wanted the son who was the hunter. And there was a failed transmission there of what it means to be a tribal elder. And we see in the blessings 
Are these siblings really moving beyond adolescence? Or are the blessings saying, you have not broken through to what it means to be an adult? To be clear, Bly's prescription, and this is the third point, is for a kind of masculinity, regardless of what organs you were born with, but an embrace of masculinity that is caring and nurturing and patient. And it's interesting because it almost matches exactly what the virtue that the rabbis draw from this parasha. And this week um, discussed by Alana Kirshen and her Devar Torah. You see repeatedly, have I drawn favor in your eyes? Or throughout Genesis, if I've drawn favor in your eyes, then please do this. If I've drawn favor, chain. If I've drawn chain in your eyes from this, chain, grace. And what grace is, what chanun is, Adonai's source of grace, is when you have like an elder or a master, someone who's in charge, and you have someone lower than them who says, you don't have to do this. But I'm asking you if I have found favor in your eyes, will you you channel graciousness toward me? If I have found favor in your eyes, will you bury me in the tomb of Machpelah? Right? If I found favor in your eyes, will you carry me there? Which shows you don't have to do this. I know when I die, the rabbis say, you guys will do what you want. But will you do this selfless act for me, even though I'll never be able to repay you? So they use that as the virtue of chen, of chanun, of, of graciousness, of grace. Produces a paid forward action where that graciousness of one older generation, of one generation to another, leads to God's favor upon us all. Maybe this parasha is meant to lead to the, what we start reading this afternoon, which is a story of men squabbling with each other and men perpetuating the order while women take over and defy Pharaoh's orders and raise Moses in their values. Shabbat Shalom.